Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Something I imagined when I was younger that would be a much greater part of my life than it actually has been, and that's reading instructions. Everything that you get comes with instructions, uh, how to use it, what to do with it, that sort of thing. And I used to think that it was important to have those instructions. When we first got married, Lori and I would accumulate you know, kitchen gadgets and stuff like that, and, and we would keep all of the documentation that came with them, all the instructions for how to use them. We had a drawer that had all of these things in them, and, and I imagined going to these books reading through them, constantly finding out how stuff was meant to be used. And none of that became a reality. I I didn't read any of those instructions. I've gone for years without reading instructions to anything. Now, if if I have to put together furniture that comes in a flat pack, it has the little instructions. And let's be honest, uh, the instructions that things come with now are are basically uh, nothing compared to what they used to come with. But even that one little sheet of instructions. I don't even, I don't like to look at it. I like to just figure it out myself. And, and it seems to me that, that everything, it should just sort of work. It should just kind of work the way that makes sense. And if it doesn't work the way that makes sense to me, uh, the problem is the thing, n- not me. So I don't even assume if I have difficulty that I should have gone back and read the instructions. I just assume this was designed poorly. Because when things are designed well, they don't need to be explained. They just work the way you would expect them to work, right? Uh, We are all very technological these days. If you think about it, those of you who are are older remember, it used to be that computers and stuff like that, those were for technological wizards. I had an uncle who had a personal computer that he had built from, from parts he got at Radio Shack, where the nerdy technological people shopped. Right? And those were the only kinds of people that stuff was for because they required all sorts of knowledge. Now, technology is for everybody, but, but the way that it became for everybody was it stopped needing to be explained. You didn't need instructions. You didn't need special knowledge. They just made technology to work sort of the way you would think it would work. And when it doesn't, you're kind of hopeless. We think of ourselves as a very technological age, but if you actually tried to explain how the gadgets in your life are functioning, you'd realize a lot of our understanding is at best metaphorical. Like we we have analogies that we, we might use to explain what's going on, but it's not really the way it's working, as evidenced by the fact that when that stuff breaks, what do we have to do? Buy new ones, because it's not fixable because the magic that makes it work is, is beyond our comprehension. If, if you go back to the old days, the, the stuff you used to buy, the manuals they came with, would actually give you information to fix that stuff. Like what to do if things go wrong, that sort of thing. Not so much anymore. As people, we're just not accustomed to looking at the instructions. And as Christian people, that sometimes becomes a problem Because occasionally, in order to understand how things work, we actually do need to go back 
and read the instructions, so to speak. We need to spend some time in the manual. Because not everything that God does works the way you think it does. Not everything that God does works the way that makes sense to you. And if you assume it works the way that makes sense to you, often you'll be misled. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, in the words that we've just read, what Paul is doing is he's pointing us back to the instructions. He's pointing us back to the text that explains how this stuff works to point out that we have not understood it rightly. So if you remember, the thing that Paul is talking about here is election. He's talking about God's choosing of a people for himself. A very Old Testament idea. But in the New Testament, God has revealed some new layers. It doesn't work exactly the way we thought it worked. And there are two kind of big changes that uh, we've seen already that that have to be uh, reconciled. That if you're a New Testament person receiving the gospel for the first time, it doesn't work exactly the way it seemed to work in the Old Testament. You have to get your head around certain uh, new realities. The biggest one is one that's largely lost to us, and it's the difference between the physical kingdom and the spiritual kingdom. We take for granted the fact that Jesus Christ came as the Messiah to be the king of a spiritual kingdom. But his first disciples took for granted the fact that the Messiah was coming to be a physical king. That if Jesus was the Messiah, then what you could expect from him is that he would be crowned, that he would rule the state of Israel, that that would probably involve having to kick out the Romans who were currently ruling the state of Israel, but that that's the kind of stuff that the Messiah would do. Like he would create this physical, political kingdom, and he would rule it as a physical, political king, the way King David had ruled it before him. That's what they expected, a physical kingdom. And it turns out Jesus reveals no That's not what I've come to do. What I've established is a spiritual kingdom. It works differently. It's not physical, it's spiritual. That's one aspect. The other aspect is, it's not just Jewish. You could have believed, growing up with the Old Testament as your guide, that salvation was for the ethnic Jewish nation. That that. All of the Jews were the chosen people, and all of the non-Jews were not. And there were a few exceptions in the Old Testament of people who'd been outside the covenant community had come in. But by and large, this is the way it worked. And now, in the apostolic age, something new has been revealed. The Apostle Paul is called as an apostle to the Gentiles. Those who were not my people, God now calls his people. So that not only is it a spiritual kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom that is made up of elect Gentiles as well as Jews. But as we saw last week, there's another side to that coin which which Paul struggles with, which is it's a spiritual kingdom made up of elect Jews and Gentiles, but not all Jews have received the Messiah. Not all Jews have are within that kingdom. So it's not just the inclusion of Gentiles, but it's also the rejection of some Jews of their Messiah. 
That's very different. And so the question that naturally comes out of that is whether or not that represents a kind of failure. Does the New Testament Gospel, particularly this spiritual, not physical kingdom that includes elect Gentiles, but not all ethnic Israelites, is that a failure of God's Word? Like, is what we're looking at an Old Testament where God promises a physical ethnic kingdom and then in the New Testament He fails to deliver? That's the question. Has the Word of God failed? He promised one thing, but actually delivered another. And isn't that a failure? Doesn't that mean something's gone wrong? Now, it makes sense when you think the emotion that Paul was expressing in the first five verses was grief. It makes sense that it would be tied to failure because feelings of grief are often the result of failure. Right? Our own failures, the failures of others, the failure of our expectations, the failure of our dreams to come true, the failure of the desires of our hearts to be fulfilled leads to grief. And now Paul is, is weighing this question, but I feel this grief, does that mean that there's been a failure on God's part? Does it mean that God's word has failed? There's different ways to answer this question. And how you answer the question will depend on how you've been reading the Old Testament or not reading the Old Testament. There's some ways in which you could answer yes to this question. Has the word of God failed? There are some affirmative answers out there. Obviously, there are people in Paul's day, there are people in the the, the Jewish community, his, his brothers and sisters in the flesh, who look at the gospel and say, no, that's not what was promised. This spiritual kingdom that you're talking about, that's not what was promised. I was promised a physical kingdom with a Messiah who would be physical, political king, who would throw out the oppressors and give us our land again. That's what I was promised. So if you're telling me it's a spiritual kingdom and these Gentiles are part of it as well, sorry, that is a failure of God's word. That's a failure. I reject that. You see hints of that in the New Testament record. like People struggling with this change. People rejecting the idea that Jesus is the Messiah because he doesn't fit their expectations. So Paul is addressing that question because it's obviously a question that comes up in that original context. But there are people even now who would say yes. That does represent a failure of God's word. There are Christians who would say that if you're saying that that what God creates is a spiritual kingdom, including some Gentiles and some Jews, that is a failure of God's word. There's a whole school of interpretation of scripture, uh, dispensationalism, that sees those Old Testament promises exactly in the same way that those first century Jews would have seen it and says something like this, 
those promises are not fulfilled by this spiritual kingdom, this New Testament gospel. And the word of God would fail, except that once God is done with the church age, once God is done with this sort of gospel thing, he will return to those older promises and make good on those too. So, yes, God promised something else. He didn't promise what happened in the New Testament. He promised something else. And he would be breaking his word if he didn't deliver on it ultimately, which he hasn't done, but he will. He'll come back to it later and he'll make good on those promises. That's two ways to answer Paul's question with a yes. Yes, God's word has failed. Or yes, it's failed for now. But don't worry, God will double back and keep those old promises too. But that is not the way Paul answers the question. Paul doesn't say, yes, God's word has failed. And he doesn't say, well, yes, it's failed for now, but don't worry, in the future, God will start keeping these promises. Paul actually says, no. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Those promises have not been unkept, but have been kept. God's word has not failed because from the beginning, election followed a spiritual rather than an ethnic plan. From the beginning. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, uh, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And that quote, he's going to do this several times, quoting Old Testament passages. That one comes from Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. So the gospel is not the failure of God's Old Testament word. It's actually the fulfillment. In a nutshell, what Paul is saying is that we only question whether this is the fulfillment because we haven't paid close enough attention to the original word. This only seems shocking and new to us. It only seems as if God has suddenly changed the rules because we didn't pay close enough attention to what God was doing from the very beginning. That applies just as much to Christians today as it does to those in the first century who were skeptical of the gospel. Our assumptions are not shaped by the actual scriptures. Our assumptions are shaped by the way we think it ought to work. And that's not always the same thing. So there's a principle that Paul enumerates when he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And the principle is that physical descent is not what makes you the children of Abraham. Physical descent is not what makes you the children of Abraham. When Jesus has this conversation with some of his Pharisee critics, they're very shocked when he questions whether or not they are children of Abraham. They take pride in the fact of their physical descent and the line of Abraham. But Jesus rebukes them and says, you're not children of Abraham. If you recall, they're children of a different father, he says. Because Jesus is pointing to the same reality, a spiritual rather than a physical election. 
Paul is saying, in essence, the same thing that he says in Romans 4 when he talks about Abraham's justification. He's not just saying, this is how it works now. He's saying, this is how it's always worked, but you weren't paying attention. It has always worked this way. You just didn't have eyes to see it. And to demonstrate the truth of this, he's going to walk us through the book of Genesis, the establishment of the covenant relationship in the first place. And show us that what makes you children of Abraham is not what you think. It's not what you think. God was always working differently than you think. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the quote. That's the evidence of what he's saying. Abraham's children are named through Isaac. Now, if you don't know the book of Genesis very well, a quote like that doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I guess Isaac is, is his son. That makes perfect sense. It doesn't make perfect sense because at the time, Abraham had another son. Isaac was not the only son of Abraham. He had another son, Ishmael. Abraham had a son before Isaac, Ishmael, a son who he loved. A son who he regarded as a worthy heir. Abraham, we talked last week about how he interceded on behalf of Sodom. Abraham was a guy with a big heart who interceded on behalf of a lot of people, one of whom was Ishmael. When God came to him and told him, oh, there'll be this other son, and through him this covenant will be established, Abraham replies in Genesis 17, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So God comes to him and says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make it with a son who I'm going to give to you. And Abraham's response is, what about this one? I have one. Do it with him. Makes perfect sense. Make him my heir. And that's not what God does. That's not what God does. It would make perfect sense if this selection was being made through some sort of physical generation. Right? The, the, the way we think it is, that if it were just an ethnic thing, Abraham has a son, we're good to go, I'll make a promise with him, that's not what God does. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God makes his covenant with Isaac instead. So what Paul is doing is he's giving you a little piece of evidence showing you that if you thought that the way God used to work was ethnic salvation, that it just mattered what family you were born into, that you were from the right race. He's giving you an example showing you that, no, 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 at the very beginning, that's not how it worked. Otherwise, God would have just gone with Ishmael and not with Isaac. God did respond and bless Ishmael, but it was through Isaac that he brought his people into existence, the children of Abraham. And so this leads to the conclusion. Paul says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So from the beginning of the covenant, there was a distinction being made between what Paul calls children of the flesh and children of the promise. And the children of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, are not of the flesh, they're of the promise. 
which is a little bit different. So God's work of election was always particular in this way from the beginning. There was already a son of the flesh, Ishmael, but the covenant promise was tied to the son of the promise who was still to come, Isaac. And this proves that election and thus salvation was never ethnic, but always spiritual. Always spiritual. And as you reflect on that, it should lead you to recognize something. That we should be careful not to ignore the way that God works because we would have done it differently. To pay attention to the details of the way that God has worked. And Paul's concern here is the idea that God hasn't kept his promises. But has the word of God failed? So it's interesting that he goes back to a situation in Genesis where that was also a question, an open question. Because God had made a promise, a covenant promise to Abraham to bless him. Through him, all the nations would be blessed. But at the time that, that Paul's now talking about, that was still an open question, whether that promise would be kept. Because God was holding out for this, this kind of weird way of doing it where Abraham and Sarah would have a son, and it was through this son that that promise would take effect. But, but they were so old at this point that, that honestly, that just wasn't going to happen. So it's like you've been promised something really good by God, but then God has, has attached this impossible circumstance to it where it couldn't possibly come to pass. Ishmael, who is the son that God does not choose in this example, Ishmael, if you think about it, is actually the result of Abraham and Sarah's well-meaning plan to help God do what God said he was going to do. God said he was going to bless them through a son. They didn't have a son. God seemed to think that Sarah was going to have a son, but they knew that wasn't likely, so they came up with an alternate plan. Now, Ishmael was not the result of, of Abraham's dalliance with some other woman. His wife came up with this idea as a way to give him a son so that they might have the promise. They came up with a plan that would allow God's intention to be fulfilled. God announced his intention to save, but he didn't follow through very quickly, and so they kind of came up with a way to make it happen. They jumped in, they did the work. They meant well. They meant well. They felt they knew better, but they were wrong. Like them, we mean well. We have all sorts of ideas about how this ought to work, about how God should have done things, and we mean well by them. And we tell ourselves that we know better. That we understand how a loving God would do loving things. Because we're loving people. And if the Bible says something different, then we go with what we know. And we don't pay attention to what he says. But when your idea of how God works is contradicted by the way God says God works... You may mean well, but you're wrong. God works the way God says he works. Don't ignore what he says. Be humble and grow in understanding. Paul is inviting us to revisit the scriptures to see 
that what he's telling us is what God has said all along. And he's inviting us to grow in understanding, to recognize that it always worked differently than we assumed. This is an invitation to growth. And we should take it. From the beginning, God was working differently than we thought. He gives us another example that shows that from the beginning, God's election operated not only outside of physical descent, but also apart from merit. Salvation wasn't by works at first and then by grace. It was always apart from merit. It was always apart from any good that we had ever done, as the second example that he gives illustrates. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. If you do know your Old Testament better than some, when Paul mentions Isaac and Ishmael, you might say to yourself, sure, fine, I get it. Isaac is chosen, not Ishmael, but, but they're only half-brothers. Maybe what was important to God was not the, the father's line, but the mother's line. That it's, what makes you one of God's people is you're born by, by the, the right mother, not by the right father. And so, so Ishmael had to be excluded. But then once Isaac was settled on, everything proceeded as you might expect. But then Paul goes to the very next generation. He goes to the example of Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, and demonstrates once again a differentiation that God makes. And this one is, is, is really tough to apply that logic to because when you talk about these two sons, Isaac and Esau, or Jacob and Esau, you're talking about twins who are together in the womb. And you're talking about children who have not yet been born. So they haven't done anything. They haven't done any good. They haven't done any bad. There's nothing to distinguish between them. They haven't even been born. And yet, God distinguishes between them in advance. And a prophecy is made to their mother. And their mother is told, the older will serve the younger. The, The natural order of things will be turned upside down. God is declaring that the covenant line will go through Jacob. The 12 sons of Jacob will be the 12 tribes of Israel, not through Esau, the older brother. And he says this to Rebekah in Genesis 25 before the children are born. So there are two consequences of this. First, you can see God's way of choosing, God's way of electing overturns human expectations. It would have been customary for the firstborn son to rule. It would have been customary to follow that sort of order of primogeniture. That's the way it's meant to work. And yet God chooses the younger to serve the older. And that's not an unusual thing for God to do. If you think about uh, David's calling, and the way that David was, was elevated as king, David is the runt of the litter. But God passes over quite a few layers in order to get down to David. God has a habit of working in this way, which is important to see. 
Another consequence, because God is announcing before the birth of the children that this is the way it's going to be, what's happening is we're precluding the possibility that what God is doing is based on Jacob's merit or on Esau's lack of merit. And Paul makes this point really clear. He drives this home. He says, the reason God does it this way is intentional. He's doing it in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Which leads to a realization, something you'll run into again and again when you start asking yourself, how does God do this salvation thing? You start to see that God has built into his plan of salvation a testimony to the fact that it happens through his grace alone. In other words, the way that he does salvation, it's engineered so that we're constantly being reminded that it's God's work and not ours. We're constantly having these these frustrated expectations so that we can only say, it's God's work, not ours. It's beyond our comprehension. It just doesn't work the way we thought it would work. Intentionally, God saves in such a way that the way of salvation is always pointing back to him, is always giving glory to him. God's done it a certain way specifically to communicate the fact that this is his work and not anyone else's. Now, the interesting thing is, when we run into these examples, we respond usually by asking ourselves, is this fair? Is it fair that God works this way? But we should be asking, why is it so important to God that not an ounce of glory goes to anyone but Him? Why does that matter so much that even the the way that salvation works would have baked into it these constant reminders insisting on the glory and the grace of God alone. That's the question that we ought to be reflecting on. In other words, God's zeal for his own glory, instead of inspiring us to wonder, is this fair? Is this right? It should inspire us to be zealous for his glory too it should make us desire to imitate him in that instead of triggering our objections. If it triggers our objections, the problem is us. We're not receiving it rightly. And again, Paul gives us an invitation to grow. God is doing this so that it can be clear that it is not through works, it is not through merit, it is not anything else Order the, uh, other than God's purpose to glorify himself. And the last thing, from the beginning, God's election is showing his love for the children of promise. Paul gives us one more quote from the Old Testament here. Not from Genesis, though. That last word about Jacob and Esau is not a quote from the book of Genesis. It's actually from the beginning of the book of Malachi. So we have jumped from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament here when he gives us these words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That comes from Malachi 1, uh, the first couple of verses. Let me read that to you. This is uh, Malachi's prophecy in Malachi 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? 
God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the opening of the book of Malachi begins with God asserting his love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then God's people do exactly what we do. and say, really? How have you loved us? I need to see some proof because my life is not going swimmingly. Bad things have happened to me. And if you're claiming to love me, you're going to need to demonstrate that fact because I have some doubts. And then God answers and gives these words that Paul quotes. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? In other words, ought they not to have been treated equally? Shouldn't they receive the same thing? And yet, they haven't. Now here, when he's talking about Jacob and Esau, he's talking not only about these individuals, he's talking about nations. The nation of Israel, which comes out of Jacob, and the nation of Edom, which comes out of Esau. And he's demonstrating his love for Israel by assuring them of a special favor that they have received that surpasses that of others. They've not been treated as everyone else has been treated. While others have been condemned for their wickedness, they have not. They have been forgiven. They have been pardoned. They have benefited from a particular love that has been shown to them by God. Now, scholars will note here that when you read uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, you do have to be aware of some nuances to the language. The language is being used here not so much to convey what we might think was just emotion or like, you know, I hate you, I love you, that sort of thing, but it has specifically to do with, with choosing and rejecting. So Jacob I have chosen and Esau I have rejected, I have passed over. Inevitably, when we hear these words, we react to the last part. Esau, I hated? What? God is hateful? What does this mean? And the story of Esau, if you look at that story, it is indeed a tragic story. The story of Esau, not only in Genesis, but when it's reflected back on later, Esau is a tragic figure. Not only did he sell his birthright, but the author of Hebrews holds him up as an example for us not to follow. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, it's a sobering story. And Esau is pointed to, and the rejection of Esau is pointed to as, as a warning to us that we should take seriously. But if our main reaction to these words of Paul and Paul's quotation of them is, is to uh, react to the rejection of Esau then surely we're missing the point. 
Now, it's okay that we're missing the point because Paul's going to take up that point in the next paragraph. If you're worried about Esau and the justice of how Esau was treated, stay tuned because next time we're going to look at whether or not what God has done is just and Paul will take that head on. But that's not the point yet. The point here is that in election, God demonstrates his glory through a demonstration of his love. The significance of that quotation from Malachi is God's demonstration of his love of his people through the special favor that he has shown them. So remember, as we've already said, the only way to know if your idea of God is right is to check it against God's idea of God, which is revealed in Scripture. All too often, we dismiss the Word in favor of our preconceived ideas. But God hasn't failed to keep His Word just because He's failed to live up to your preconceived idea. Because that idea is flawed. Remember, too, that for reasons that that we need to reflect on more and to appreciate more, God has built into His way of salvation a testimony to the fact that He alone saves. That it is all by His grace. You will not be saved by race. You will not be saved by choice. You will not be saved by merit. You can only be saved by grace. You can only be saved by by God alone. And if those things are true, so is this. Your faith in Him. And every part of your salvation is a demonstration of God's love. Of God's love. The love that He has for His people. The love that is conveyed in the words that Paul uses, children of the promise. Children of the promise a recipients of a special affection that God shows. Children of the promise inherit not by right, not by merit, but through loving adoption into the line of Christ. Simply have faith in the promise and you who were once children of wrath become the children of God. Have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, and the promise to Abraham becomes the promise to you, which you discover was always to you. That's the way salvation works. I said at the beginning, we're a technological people who don't understand the way our technology works because we don't read the instructions. Stuff doesn't even come with instructions any longer. But the gospel does, and it helps us to go back and to understand the way that God does what God does. But there's something else about the analogy that's worth reflecting on. Uh, Like technology, salvation doesn't work or not work depending on whether or not you understand it. So the reason you need to know these things is not that if you don't understand God's salvation, it won't work. That you need to, to grasp all of the details in order to be saved. No. God's salvation is God's work, and and God saves a lot of people who don't understand the means by which they're being saved. In fact, let's be honest, there's a sense in which none of us understand the means by which we are being saved. So we don't have to understand how it works 
in order for it to work. But we do need to know this much. We need to know whose work it is. And that's what this is all about. Reminding us whose work it is. You don't need to understand how it works. But you need to remember who is working in salvation. That way, you can give the glory where the glory belongs. You can praise the one who deserves the praise and not waste any of that praise or any of that glory where it doesn't go. You need to know that God's word hasn't failed and has actually been fulfilled so that you can respond by glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.